Turn with me to Lamentations chapter 3. So we continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Lamentations. We find ourselves this morning in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 25 through 27. And I've titled this morning's message, Faith in Suffering. You see, in our study of Lamentations 3 up to this point, we've learned a number of things. Among those, we've learned that faithfulness is God's goal for our suffering. What the Lord requires of us and what the Lord is building into us is faithfulness. That through suffering we would grow in godliness. That as followers of Christ we would grow in conformity to Christ. God's goal for our suffering is faithfulness. We've seen also, among other things, that God's grace is sufficient for us in our suffering. In fact, that's what we saw last week. That God not only providentially allows us to endure suffering, and He does so to build faithfulness into our life, but but in addition to those realities and those truths, we also have the promise of God's grace in the midst of our suffering. As Paul learned, the Apostle Paul learned, God's grace is sufficient. And oftentimes, we need to go through suffering to learn that lesson. God's grace is sufficient. We don't need any of these other things that we think that we need. What we need is God. What we need is His grace. So as we continue to study through this chapter and learn all that it has to teach us, especially all that it has to teach us about suffering, today we're going to learn how we must respond to suffering in order to meet God's goal and receive God's grace. So we've seen God's goal, it's faithfulness. We've seen God's grace, it's offered to us. Today, in these three short verses, we're going to see something of what our response must be if we want to reach that goal and receive that grace. And so look with me at Lamentations chapter 3, verses 25 through 27. And this is the word of the Lord. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Now, there's a pretty clear theme running through these three verses, and it's the word good. You see it in all three verses. The Lord is good. It is good. It is good. That's how all three of these verses start. So really what this verse is doing is it's highlighting for us what is good in suffering. And that's helpful, isn't it? So often we become disoriented in our suffering. Almost like the, the diver who's, who's diving deep in the waters in the cave and all of a sudden he gets disoriented. He doesn't know which way is up or which way is down. And as a result, he can't find the surface. He can't get out of the cave. Well, When the suffering floods over us, we can often become disoriented like that deep sea diver. Almost like we don't know even which way is up. In fact, that happened to uh, the prophet in this very chapter. He said, I didn't know what good was. Verse 17. 
My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. And the word translated happiness there, it's actually the Hebrew word good. Same word we find in our text. The, the prophet, because of his suffering, because of the intensity of the trial, and because of all that was going on in his life, he became disoriented. He didn't even know what good was. In fact, he only saw bad. But in fact, as we learned, the problem wasn't his circumstances. The problem, verse 18, was, as the prophet says, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. And remember, what we saw there was that the prophet was talking about his own faith. My enduring trust in the Lord, that's what failed. The reason I became disoriented and I could not see good anymore, I could only see bad, was because my enduring faith didn't endure. It faltered. My faith faltered and I wasn't able to see the goodness of God in my circumstances. So too, he says that his hope from the Lord had dissipated. It had gone away. And remember, hope is not something that the Lord does. Hope is what we do promise give promises that's what god does did did god's promise fail did god's promise go anywhere no so what was the problem it was the prophet's faith in those promises it was the the promise uh the prophet's lack of trust in those promises that's what was going on and the same thing so often happens to us where we become disoriented in the midst of our trials to the point where look we don't even know what's good anymore I just know that this feels awful and I want it to stop feeling awful. That would be a good start. I mean, so often we lose clarity in the midst of suffering. Uh, that's something that I've experienced, you've experienced, it's so important. We get in the midst of, uh, uh, of a pressing situation and all of a sudden we start chasing after solutions, chasing after uh, uh, relief. We start reacting to that situation before we even have clarity of what's going on. I, I, don't, I don't even know what's going on, and yet I'm just responding to it. Well, the prophet had to deal with that in his own heart, if you'll remember in our study. In fact, the prophet had to repent of this and call to mind the goodness of God's character. Remember verse 21, he says, but I call this to mind. Literally, I turn my heart towards, and then verses 22 through 24, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That's good. His mercies never come to an end. That too is good. You see where we're going with this, don't you? They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It's not, to, it's not just good, it's great. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. So now I went from, uh, I don't see anything that's good, to now I say, whoa, the Lord who is great, that's my portion. And I went from, I didn't have any hope, to the end of verse 24, therefore I will hope in Him. See, the problem wasn't that there was nothing good for the prophet in the midst of his suffering. The problem is that he wasn't looking to those good things, like the character of God, in faith. He had to repent of that unbelief. He had to recognize it, see it in his life, and call to mind, turn back to the goodness of God. And now that the prophet has, has worked through these things in his heart, he's turning his attention to his readers and saying, okay, I found what was good in my suffering, and it's God. And here I want you to see what is good for you in your suffering. 
See, these verses help to shape our response to suffering by showing us what is good, specifically what would be good responses to suffering. And this is so helpful. How many times, I, I couldn't count, how many times I've had dear saints in my office saying, Pastor, I just don't know what to do. Here the prophet, he's not answering every question that you're going to have. He's not, gonna, he's not telling you exactly what decision you need to make about this situation in your life. But he is telling you what are good responses in the midst of suffering. And let me just say this. One of the things that we don't see in this verse is that it would be good to go looking for suffering. <laughs> we've been talking about suffering so much and, and we've been trying to see the noble purpose that God has in the midst of suffering that if, if we became unbalanced and uncareful in our thinking, we might go too far and say, well, if suffering's so great, I'm just going to go find some suffering to endure. Uh, dear brother or sister, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. It's not good to go looking for suffering, and it's not good to unnecessarily remain in suffering. There's nothing noble about suffering in and of itself. Which means if God provides you the means to avoid suffering, you take those and tell the Lord thank you. If you're in the midst of suffering, and God provides you the means to get out of that suffering, without compromising your conscience, without violating His Word, without taking matters into your own hands, just through means that the Lord puts in front of you and, 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 and wisdom that the Lord has made available to you, if God allows you the opportunity to get out from underneath that suffering, you know what you do? You take it and you tell the Lord, thank you. Thank you for teaching me a lesson through this suffering. Thank you for sanctifying me through this suffering. And thank you for getting me out of it. We don't want to become unbalanced and go looking for these things. However, if God providentially sends suffering into your life and then keeps you in it, which if it hasn't happened, it will happen, you need to know how to respond, don't you? In those moments when you say, Lord, I've prayed about this, why have you not taken it away? What do I do now, Lord? Well, this passage isn't going to answer every detail of every question that you might have, but it will provide us with three good responses in the midst of suffering. Three good responses in the midst of suffering. That's kind of how we're going to organize our thoughts this morning. That'll be our outline, these three good responses in the midst of suffering. And just to kind of give you a hint to give away the ending at the beginning all three of these good responses describe different aspects of faith. That's what the prophet's talking about here. The best way we can respond to suffering is in real, genuine, living faith in God. By the way, that's a key, key realization that we need to have in the midst of our suffering. If you go into suffering thinking that you need something more than you need faith in God, you're in trouble. 
Let me say that again. If you go into suffering, or any situation for that matter, thinking that you need something in this world more than you need faith in God, you're in trouble. If you think that you need your health more than you need your faith in the Lord, you're in trouble. If you think that you need comfort and leisure more than you need faith, that's a recipe for disaster, spiritual disaster. If you think you need earthly prosperity more than you need trust in your heavenly Father, your soul is headed towards a bad place. There is nothing that we need more than a growing and vital and vibrant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing we need more than that. That, by the way, is why our loving Heavenly Father is willing to put us through the crucible of earthly suffering to refine our faith in Christ. He knows that we need faith. Faith is our greatest responsibility in this life, and it is always the best response to suffering. To trust the Lord, that is the essence of what is good for us to do. That's the, that is the principle that is undergirding this entire passage. To trust the Lord, that is what is good for us to do in suffering. Sometimes you're not going to know what that looks like, by the way. Sometimes you're not... I, Sometimes there are going to be questions and situations that you have to deal with that there are no clear-cut answers. How do I respond to this? I'm not giving you a silver bullet to take care of every situation and resolve every tension that you're ever going to have in your mind and in your life. But I am telling you this, that the baseline, the baseline for a good response, good as deemed by God, is faith. And so there are sometimes believers where we say, I I, I don't know. I don't know what to do. But I know that God is good. I know that God will give me wisdom. And I know that if I start to make a bad decision, the Lord will protect me from that. I have to trust the Lord. I have to trust the Lord Even as I search for specific answers, I don't have to search for a God that I can trust in. He's there. He's there. That's the basis of a good response to suffering. And these verses show us something of what it looks like in practice to trust the Lord in our suffering. And so let's look at these three good responses one at a time. And we find the first of these good responses in verse 25. And in this verse, the prophet commends to us what we might call active enduring. That's our first good response. What what is good for us to do when the Lord brings suffering and trial and temptation into our life? Well, it is good for us to actively endure. And, And notice how the prophet begins to bring this out. When he begins by saying that the Lord is good. Again, that's, basic, that's the basic baseline for our trust. My situation is not good, but my Lord is good. 
And of course, goodness here in this passage, it's not determined by what we want or desire. Goodness is determined by the character of God who is good and always does what is good. In fact, we might say that the goodness that the prophet is talking about here when he says that the Lord is good is defined by the three previous verses. The steadfast love of the Lord, His mercies, His faithfulness. That's the goodness of God towards us. It's His, it's his covenant blessings. It's His gracious disposition. It's His kind gifts towards His creatures. Undeserved gifts, mind you. I mean, think about the goodness that we as God's people can claim as ours from the Lord. We can go so far as to say with the Apostle Paul from Ephesians 1.3 that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. That's good. Through Christ, we have, for instance, the blessing of the forgiveness of sins. Left to ourselves, forgiveness is not possible because we're sinners. There's nothing that we can do to change that. And yet, through the death of Christ Jesus on the cross, our sins are paid for. And now, forgiveness is a blessing that we as believers have received. So too, we could say the same thing about righteousness. The Scriptures teach us that as believers in Christ Jesus, when you put your faith in Christ Jesus is what that means, that you are justified by God, declared righteous. Well, where does that righteousness come from? What's the basis for that declaration? It's not something that we have done, but it's the righteousness of Christ that's credited to us. To use the theological terminology, that imputed righteousness of Christ. Those are significant blessings that we can claim from the Lord. That's God's goodness in our life. And God's goodness, here's the promise, God's goodness never changes. The Lord is good. That's a statement that is true forever. It's always been true. And yet, it is also and simultaneously true that that goodness is not experienced by everyone in the same way, is it? All those blessings that I just mentioned about forgiveness of sins and righteousness and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, the Scriptures are clear that those are not good gifts towards everyone on this earth, but those are good gifts towards those who have put their faith in Christ Jesus. Which means if you're here today and you've never repented and believed in Christ, you can't claim those gifts. You don't have forgiveness of sins. You don't have the righteousness that you need to enter into heaven. These are good gifts for those who have trusted in Christ. That's why we can say that the spiritual blessings that accompany salvation and eternal life, they're reserved for those who have had faith, or to use the language of the prophet here, for those who wait for Him. That's what it says here. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. And this term, wait, this is the language of faith. When the prophet calls on us and, and commends waiting, here's what he's talking about. Enduring your circumstances without abandoning your allegiance to God. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? It means enduring your circumstances without abandoning your allegiance to God.
See, goodness is given from God to those who wait on His provision and trust in Him in contrast with those who employ their own devices and trust in their own means. Really, what's interesting here is, is Lamentations 3.25, it's, it's essentially teaching the same principle as Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28, God works together all things for good for those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. Those who have been called by God, they're, they're, they're believers who love Christ Jesus, they can trust that God, even though they're experiencing suffering, which in and of itself is not good, they can trust that God is working together all things for good in their life. That's exactly what the prophet is talking about here. God promises His goodness to His people. And that's a promise that motivates us to trust in Him, doesn't it? To endure. To hang on to the Lord. You know, it's so funny that the, the cheesy little motivational things that people use to try to keep them going and keep them motivated and keep them enduring. How do you stay motivated? Well, that's another way of saying, how do you endure? You know, some people can stay motivated just with like a, one of those cheesy little motivational posters that's got like the little kitty hanging upside down that says, hang in there. I don't get it. I mean, I don't like cats, but I, I don't get it. I mean, but but think about all the think about all the motivators that you're growing up playing sports. I was more of a baseball guy, so you got to stay more even keeled than that. You know, you fail seven out of ten times, and you're an awesome hitter. So you got to stay a little more even keeled. When I played football, though, everybody's slapping each other in the head and yelling and trying to get each other motivated. And I was like, oh, okay, this is this is not my thing, but okay. But some of the stuff you say to motivate people, it's like, wait a minute, if we stop and think about that for a minute, it makes absolutely no sense. People, people are looking for reasons to endure and get motivated, and, and, and a lot of it is just so highly emotional that if you really think about it, it doesn't make much sense. You know, read a, read a greeting card and really think it through, and you'll say, wait a minute, that does not make any sense at all. Well, here, the prophet is pointing us to a a much deeper source of endurance and motivation, isn't he? The Lord is good to those who wait on him. What's the implication there? You keep waiting on him. You hang in there, not like that dumb little kitty cat poster, but you hang in there and you hold on to the Lord. He's good. Don't stop waiting on him. By the way, this is what Satan was trying to tempt Christ to do, to, to violate in the wilderness. Christ came and he had all these promises from the Father. And if you look at the temptation of Satan, they were aimed at, at many of those promises. Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. He said, give us this day our daily bread, right? Who gives daily bread? Our Father in heaven. Well, Jesus is out fasting in the wilderness, starving. And Satan says, look, you're God. Stop waiting on your father. Turn that stone into bread and eat. Don't wait on the father anymore. Can you really trust him to give it to you when you need it? You take that bread for yourself. Of course, Christ said no. Or, or even when, when, when Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth, and he said, well, look, I've got dominion over these right now, and I'll give you that dominion. But the father promised that kingdom, the kingdom of this earth to the Son. You're going to reign on the throne of David over all of this. 
Was Christ reigning at that moment? Well, no. What's Satan saying? Look, stop waiting on your father. He may or may not deliver on that promise. I'll give you something of that right now. Right now. Don't wait on the Lord. Don't wait on your father. Sin now. Take it now. Take matters into your own hands. Stop submitting to the father. Did Jesus do that? Well, no, to his eternal glory and our eternal salvation, he didn't. What did he do? He waited on his father. He endured. And that's what we're called to do. And it's interesting here, just a little note of grammar, if you're interested in that kind of thing. The word wait here is a participle, which may or may not mean anything to you, but what it signifies is that this is not kind of a one-time, one-and-done thing. But this is an ongoing pattern of life. The Lord is good to those who keep on waiting for Him. That's the idea. And notice the prophet shows that this kind of patterned life waiting, it's not going to happen automatically. It says the Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. Building spiritual endurance and waiting on the Lord. It's going to require that you're actively seeking the Lord. You might get the idea from, well, I've got to wait on the Lord. That means I don't do anything. I'm just waiting on God to resolve all this. And, and I'm just completely passive. That's what it means to wait. Well, the, the prophet dispels that, doesn't he? When he says that the Lord is good to those who wait on Him, but then he adds actively to the soul who seeks after Him. You're seeking after the wisdom of the Lord in your circumstances. You're seeking after the grace of the Lord to sustain you. You're seeking after His truth so you'll know what to do. You're not just sitting around saying, well, I've got to wait on the Lord, which means I can't do anything. No, no, no. You're actively seeking Him and seeking how to honor Him in your circumstances. In fact, waiting on the Lord without actively seeking the Lord would really be a form of spiritual presumption. I'm not going to obey the Lord. I'm not going to seek the Lord. I'm just going to sit here and expect the Lord to bless me in that. That's presumption. And if you're passive about your faith and passive about your obedience, then waiting on the Lord... It's going to become impossible for you. You've got to seek the Lord. Seek His wisdom. Seek His truth. Seek His grace. Pursue communion and obedience to God through all the means of grace that He's made available to you. That's what it means to seek the Lord. And, and the way these two are linked together in this verse makes it clear. You cannot say that you are waiting on the Lord in your life if you're not also seeking His grace in your life. Sometimes we use waiting on the Lord as an excuse for disobedience. Well, I, you know, I really can't get involved in church right now. I can't obey this command from Scripture about the church, or I can't obey this command. I'm just in this situation. I'm, I'm waiting on the Lord. Okay, how long does that last? How long is the Lord going to have you here? I mean, if you knew that, that the Lord was only going to have you there for two weeks, I'd say, okay, that makes sense to me. We'll see you in two weeks. But we have no promises on how long these things are going to last from the Lord. So what are you going to do? You just, what if the Lord has you in this situation the rest of your life? Are you just going to ignore these other commands your whole life and say, I'm waiting on the Lord. You know, Pastor, I can't really pursue obedience in this area because I'm waiting in the Lord over here. 
you be careful of that. Heart loves to justify sin, as was mentioned in Sunday school earlier. And that can be a very spiritual sounding way of disobeying, can it? Just wait on the Lord. Well, the prophet makes it clear that when you wait on the Lord, you're also seeking the Lord. You're seeking His presence, His grace, and obedience to Him. And that's a good thing. That's active enduring. In the midst of our suffering, we must prioritize waiting and seeking. And we can trust that God will be good to those who actively endure and wait on Him. So that's a good response. That's what makes it good. <laughs> makes it good because God is going to bless that. As we keep going in verse 26, we find a second good response to suffering. Here in this verse, the prophet commends what we might call patient hoping. Patient hoping. That's a good response to suffering. Patient hoping. We've already learned quite a bit about hope in this chapter, so we're not going to go over all that again. But just by way of review, you'll remember that hope, it's not a wish and a dream about what might, might happen in the future, but biblical hope is a confident and patient expectation that God's promises will come to fruition. In other words, hope is a forward-looking faith. It is a confidence in the promises of God. And here, here we are reminded that, that this kind of hope requires patience on our part. Or as the prophet says again, waiting. Verse 26 says, It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Now I'll just point out to you, just another grammar note if you're interested in that kind of thing. The word translated wait in verse 26 is different from the Hebrew word translated wait in verse 25. Two different words. Kind of makes a difference here because the word for wait in verse 26, it does mean to wait, but, but it has an idea of waiting with an eye towards the future. So if in verse 25 it's you wait and you seek the Lord right now, then in verse 26 is you wait and you're looking forward to the promises of God coming to fruition in the future. In other words, essentially it's talking about what we would call hope. And specifically, the prophet is calling on us to, to place our hoping and our suffering within the context of God's salvation. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, the terminology for salvation is thick with meaning. No doubt that part of what the prophet had in mind here was a physical deliverance, a physical salvation from the Babylonians and from the exile. That's part of what the word group here would have included. But the terminology for salvation does not end with just a mere physical deliverance from captivity. It includes all the blessings of salvation that God promises to His people, including the forgiveness of sins. So salvation, in this sense, had a temporal and a spiritual connotation as Israel looked forward to the future 
kingdom when the Messiah, who would forgive their sins, would come back and reign over them. And by the way, this salvation, it says it's from the Lord. It's from Yahweh. Well, we know that the Lord is Christ, right? Come to the New Testament. Who is, who is this Lord of salvation? Well, it's Christ Jesus who has come. And what the prophet's encouraging us to do here is this, this salvation, this hope of a future kingdom, which includes our forgiveness of sins and our reigning with Christ, that needs to provide the context of our thinking when we're in the midst of suffering. Don't you think about what am I going to do for the next five years? Well, you might need to plan on that, but you need to be thinking about the next billion years just as much as you need to be thinking about the next five years if you're a believer in Christ. But we're not there yet, are we? Which is why this kind of hope needs to be not only focused on the salvation of the Lord, but it also needs to be characterized by a certain quietness. The prophet says we should wait quietly. And here, quietly isn't restricted to literal silence. It's referring to an attitude of patience. An attitude of resolved contentment and a, and a disposition of patient trust. In other words, God has promised me His salvation. And I'm not going to let my circumstances shake my faith in that salvation. And I'm also not going to talk back to the Lord as I wait on that salvation. I know that the Lord is so reliable. I know that the Lord is so good. I know that the Lord is so faithful that I'm going to stand right here and I'm going to wait patiently until I receive all the promises of salvation that God has given to me. I'm not going to complain about God's means. That's a big one, isn't it? God's promise of salvation, and part of that salvation is we will reign with Christ, we will be like Christ, we will be glorified like Christ, fully sanctified, holy. We like that, don't we? The promise of glorification is an awesome promise. Here's the problem. The Lord has not only promised that to us, but He has also revealed the means by which He's going to bring us to that. And one of the means that the Lord uses to bring us to that glorification is suffering now in this life. So we want the promise, but we want to complain about the means He uses to fulfill the promise. You've got to be careful about that. Or the timing of it. Or the timing of it. You know, you'll, you'll receive the full benefits of salvation in eternity. But right now, we still suffer in this fallen world. What the prophet is saying is, look, you need to wait quietly on the Lord. Patiently hope in His future salvation. By the way, Jeremiah knew what it was to suffer in this life quietly while waiting on the salvation of the Lord. In the very beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, which was, uh, to say the least, a difficult ministry. He preached the truth. He was faithful to the Lord, but he was completely rejected by God's people. Scorned, pressed, physically beaten. Eventually, uh, history, not the Scriptures, but history uh, indicates that he was killed. Well, at the very beginning of his ministry in Jeremiah 1.8, God told Jeremiah, do not be afraid of them, 
For I am with you to deliver you. Same word, to save you. When Jeremiah is is calling on us, you need to wait quietly on God's salvation. (laughs) He wasn't doing it as somebody who had no idea what that was like. He was doing that as a prophet who was at that moment quietly waiting on the salvation of the Lord. And reminding us, it is good to wait on the Lord. It's good to wait on His future promises. It's good to place your suffering within the context of your salvation. That's what patient hoping does. And so we've got some good responses. Active enduring. Patient hoping. Then we come to verse 27 where we see a third good response to suffering. And in this verse, the prophet commends what we might call submitted bearing. That's our third good response. Submitted bearing. You see, suffering in this life has a hard but necessary spiritual purpose and we must learn to submit to that purpose and bear up under the suffering. Let me tell you a few things that would not be good for you. You think they'd be good for you. Like on Sunday morning when I preach it, you might say amen. But, but your natural tendency during the week is to think that these things would be good for you when they wouldn't be. For instance, it would not be good if you lived your life and always got what you wanted when you wanted it. That would not be good for you. I mean, I know it wouldn't be good for me. I'm only hardly bearable as it is. I can't imagine how unbearable I'd be if I got everything I wanted when I wanted it. I tell you what, if you got little kids, let's, we'll do a little long-term experiment. You give your kids for the next year everything they want exactly when they want it. And then after the end of that year, you tell me, is that good or bad? You'll last a week. It's not good. I mean, we think it would be good. Every time we don't get what we want, when we want it, we, we, our, our heart wants to, to, to have a temper tantrum. I mean, we're adults, some of us in the room at least. So we hide it better. Some of us at least. But this is, it's just a spiritual temper tantrum. I didn't get what I wanted when I wanted it. So now I'm angry. Look, it would not be good for you if you got everything you wanted exactly when you wanted it. It would also not be good if you lived your life always avoiding hard things. Sometimes we orient and direct our life to avoid challenging circumstances. I don't want to confront that person. That'd be hard. I'd rather just avoid that person. Look, to to, to avoid hard things in this life, it's not healthy for us. Especially when the Lord puts those hard things before us. Look, this is not how Christ lived on this earth, is it? Christ didn't live perfectly on this earth by avoiding the hard things. He lived perfectly on this earth by submitting to whatever difficulty or hard thing the Father put before Him. And and in this same vein... In verse 27, that's why the prophet is able to say it's good for a man that he bear the yoke. 
What's the yoke here? Well, specifically, it's likely referring to the exile for Israel. It's good for Israel to bear this yoke. It's good for them to be disciplined. It's good for them to submit to the Lord's discipline. But, but more generally, as you, as you principalize this, you realize that it signifies, the yoke signifies whatever providential suffering God might permit in your life. It's good for you to bear that. It's good for you to receive that as from the Lord. Doesn't mean you have to like it. That's not what bearing it means. You don't have to say, oh, that was hard, and I just, I love how it, how it inflicted pain on me. No, that's, you know, I think the spiritual terminology for that is that would be weird. <laughs> I mean, the, being a Christian doesn't turn you into some kind of masochist. We don't, we don't want it, and we don't have fun in it. Even Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane as He's praying to the point of sweating uh, blood, Was he enjoying the feelings that he had in his human nature at that moment? No. But it it was the cup that the Lord had given to him. His father had given to him. It was his yoke. So what did he have to do? He had to bear it. Why? Because it was good for him to bear it. That's what bearing it means. Not to just get some kind of weird sense of enjoyment out of it. To bear it means to accept it as from the Lord and pursue faithfulness in it as long as the Lord's got you there. That's what it means. I mean, even think about a yoke. When you, not many of us use yokes anymore, I guess, but when you lay a yoke on an ox, it's for a purpose. You're not just throwing it on there because you like the way the ox looks better with the yoke on it. You're going to plow a field, right? So when you lay that yoke on him, it's for a purpose, but the ox must submit to that purpose until the job is done, right? Plowing doesn't get done if all of a sudden the ox throws the yoke off before the field is plowed. That's why we have to bear under these yokes when the Lord brings them in our life. I'm reminded of what William Tyndale, the great Bible translator who was killed for translating the Bible in English said. Very simply, he put it, we are not called to a soft living. That's pretty good, isn't it? Because that's what we want. We want a soft living. How can I get more downtime? How can I get uh, more disposable income? How can I get a little bit more entertainment and leisure in my life? Those are the things that the world wants to drive us to. But Tyndale reminds us we're not called to a soft living. It shouldn't disorient us when the Lord lays a yoke on us. We need to bear that. And by the way, the prophet says that it's particularly good to bear this yoke in his youth. What is that talking about? Well, I think in particular, the prophet is saying that this is the perfect time in Israel's history for them to go into exile. It's good for us to be disciplined by the Lord right now because eventually He's going to come back and we don't want to be disciplined then. We want to be be saved then. And so let's bear this sanctifying exile now. Let's bear this holy discipline from the Lord now as as He purges our people and as He disciplines the faithful. Let's bear this now. And it's better to go through this now than to receive eternal punishment in the future. Let 
And I think we can extrapolate this same principle in our lives to see the perfect timing of God's trials for us. We're tempted to think every time we go through a trial or suffering, we're tempted to think, you know, I, I know what the Lord's doing, but oh, it's just not the right time right now. <laughs> okay, so the Lord's perfect except for this one instance. It's good for us in the exact timing that the Lord provides. And we'd rather get it done early rather than late. You'd rather, you'd rather kind of, for lack of a better term, clamp down on your kids when they're younger and really build into them when they're younger so that you can give them more freedoms and let them make more of their own decisions when they're older. The same is true for us. We'd, we'd rather... As early as possible, let's let the Lord sanctify these things out of us so we can move forward in holiness. By the way, I do think by implication there is a practical principle here just as a side note when it comes to parenting. It's good for kids to do hard things. It just is. I mean, we used to live in a culture where it would not be uncommon for you know, a kid to kill a chicken and pull all its feathers off and clean it and get ready to cook it. Well, there's, we don't really live in a culture where those kind of hard things are done anymore. More and more, it's, it's, it's difficult to even find hard circumstances to put your kids in. And more and more, parents are becoming accustomed to trying to shelter their children from difficult things. Don't do everything for your kids unless you want to keep doing everything for them forever. You, you let those hard circumstances humble them. You let those hard circumstances teach them. You know what we call that? Good parenting. And if it's good parenting for us to do that with our kids, how much better is it when the Lord allows us to go through hard circumstances to teach us and humble us? We've got to submit to that. We've got to bear that. What the Lord puts in your life, I don't know why He's put it there. I can't, I can't answer that. At least not in perfect detail. Why you? Why now? I don't know. But the Lord knows. And it's for us to submit to that yoke and bear it. In fact, our trust in the Lord is often tested and refined by our willingness to submit to His providence in our lives. We waste so much time with what-ifs when really we should be focusing on what is and how we can be faithful right now. Look, when you're committed to submitted bearing of the yoke the Lord lays upon you, not only is that good, but you have the promise of His help in that circumstance. Remember what Christ said? We don't have to go there, but remember what Christ said in Matthew chapter 11? My yoke is what? Easy. My burden is light. Does it feel easy and light? No, it does not. It doesn't feel easy and light. So what is Christ talking about? He's talking about the fact that He's there sustaining us in the midst of it. You can submit to and bear that yoke knowing that in Christ you have Him strengthening and sustaining you. And by the way, this is the path to inner contentment and inner peace. As Calvin aptly put it, 
when we submit to these yokes, it says, he says, it is then. And when it is then that our true happiness comes when we acknowledge that we are not our own and allow God by his sovereign power to rule over us as he pleases. When you submit to that, when you when you put those what ifs away and you put those whys back where they came from and you say, you know what, I belong to God. And he can rule over me as he pleases. That's good. That's good. God knows what's good for our soul and it's good for us to trust Him by bearing the suffering that He allows in our life. And so these verses help us. They clearly outline three good responses to suffering. Active enduring, patient, hoping, and submitted bearing. Each of these responses to suffering is good and each of these responses to suffering describes a specific outworking of faith in our life. Again, that's the principle here. It is good to trust the Lord in the midst of our suffering. That's how we receive the grace of God and that's how we pursue faithfulness to God. That's the point here. The point of this passage is that faith, true living faith, is good even in the midst of suffering. And faith in the midst of suffering is good because as we saw last week, God in the midst of suffering is good. We pray with me? Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the direction it provides for us. We confess that we do so easily become entangled with the things of this world and disoriented by suffering and trials. So we pray that these good responses that the prophet has outlined for us in this passage would have their effect in our life that we might pursue faithfulness to these, that we, we might learn more and more what it is to trust you even in the midst of trying circumstances. And along the way, we thank you, Lord, for your grace that sustains us and strengthens us. It's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen.